Hi, everybody. This is Lee. I'm here with Jerry and Bob. We are One New Man Ministries. We are an Ephesians 2 ministry, a ministry of reconciliation with an intention to reconcile all believers in Yeshua HaMashiach, that is Jesus Christ, so that we can be built together into a dwelling place for the Lord. And as Ephesians 2 said, so he, that's Yeshua, came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. In him, the whole structure, in him, that's Yeshua, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. We, and for him, for through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So while we study the Old Testament and the New Testament together with an eye towards seeing how the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and we study the Haftor, which is often from the prophets. So we have an exciting study to get today. So Jerry, take us away. Our New Testament portion is where we're going to begin. The hope here as we get started is that there is a pretty strong thread uh, tying these three passages together. Our Old Testament portion is um, Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18 and running through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 uh, verse 9. I think that's 9 I wrote down. Uh, our Haftorah portion, the uh, part that we read from the prophets is Isaiah chapter 51 verse 12 through Isaiah 52 verse 12. And then our New Testament portion is from the Gospel of John beginning at verse 19 and running through to verse 28. No, a little bit further, I think. Uh, let me say verse 29. Um, and as I said, I hope that what we'll see is there is this very prominent, powerful thread of God's salvation uh, revealed in Jesus, in Yeshua. Uh, and it begins, uh, we're going to start with uh, John chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And when John uses this phrase, the Jews, he is typically talking about not the whole Jewish nation, but he's talking about the Jewish leadership. And these are the people who sent priests and Levites. Uh, these would be the sons of Aaron and the sons of the other two tribes. He sent them out to, uh, from Jerusalem to the Jordan where John was, and they wanted to know who he was, what, what he was doing, who gave him authority. Uh, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, the Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same, same meaning. One is uh, English from Hebrew, and the other one is English from Greek. So Messiah is from Moshiach in Hebrew. Christ is from Christos in Greek. Same word, the anointed one. I am not the anointed one, he said. And they asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? because uh, there was an expectation that Elijah was going to appear before the coming of the Lord, if we read the prophet Malachi. Are you Elijah? So, okay, you're not the Messiah. Are you the forerunner? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? And this is what ties us to our uh, Parsha today, the uh, portion in Deuteronomy that talks about uh, a prophet who will arise from the people, who will be like Moses, but him you should listen to. So there was an expectation that a great prophet would arise in the last days. Are you that one? He says, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John responds with a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John saw himself as a herald, okay? Uh, the word that we have, uh, evangelism, evangelical, all come from the Greek word euangelion, which means to herald good news. Somebody who is appointed to go out and tell good news, usually about something uh, that's coming from the palace. We had this great victory. Uh, we had this 
this uh, wonderful um, uh, victory over our enemies. Uh, we're coming to visit you, whatever it might happen to be, that there will be a herald who goes out in front of the king. And he says, that's who I am. So it says they had been sent from the Pharisees, and that ties us back to uh, that first part. And so they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And he answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So he had been uh, a prophet, if we look carefully, he had been out there preaching, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And water is that symbolic ritual cleansing. He's saying the people need to be cleansed from their sin in order to be made ready for the king to appear. And so he saw that as his role, and that's what he was doing. I've been sent to make the way ready for the king to appear. It says in verse 29, Then the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we want to take a moment and unpack that word Jesus again. I know we've done it before, but it's helpful to remind ourselves that the word Jesus that we read in English is the translation of the, he, of the Greek word Jesus, which is the Greek appropriation of the Hebrew word Yeshua. That's why we talk about Yeshua on this show. Yeshua is, is Jesus' name in Hebrew, and Yeshua in Hebrew literally means salvation. Amen. So that when John looked at him, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's talking about salvation. He saw salvation coming, Jesus, and he said, here comes the Lamb who will bring salvation to the world by being a sacrifice. He's taking away the sins of the world, Jerry. Does that mean the past, present, and the future at that time? Yes. He has taken upon him all sins that were committed up until his earthly life, and he's taken upon himself all the sins committed since his earthly life. Because, I mean, realistically, God is eternal. He sees the end from the beginning, and Yeshua enters into our humanity and into our history as God in the flesh, and he takes upon himself all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, uh, uh, judging it from his earthly life, past, present, and future. But he has taken upon himself all the sins of the world. And that's why, you know, though he was uh, crucified, buried, and rose again uh, 2,000 or so years ago, why we can still come to him in faith and receive salvation, forgiveness of our sins. It's a good, good point to make. Thanks, Bob. So in this passage, there's kind of three ties backwards to uh, our, our Torah portion and our prophets portion. The first one, of course, is the reference we've already made that he denied being the prophet, the expected prophet, the one who would be like Moses. And that connects to our Torah portion in uh, chapter, I think, 18. Uh, Moses tells the people to expect a prophet who will arise uh, who will come from among your brothers, you will listen to him. You should listen to him, one like me. And, you know, there's so many ways in which uh, Moses is a type of, of Yeshua. Let me just read off a couple. Uh, the scripture says that Moses was faithful in his house and Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Uh, it says that uh, Moses was drawn from the water in order to be rescued. Jesus' name, uh, Yeshua, literally means God saves, God rescues, God saves. Uh, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was tested in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Moses refuses to worship false gods. Jesus refuses to worship Satan on that mountain. Uh, so many different ways that uh, Moses... Uh, and Jesus share the, this, this pattern. And so that's why we say as New Covenant followers that Jesus is the prophet, the promised prophet. But when we look at back at our... Well, let me hold on to that thought a second. The other, the other way this New Testament passage connects then is this idea of John being the herald, the announcer. And that's what we find in Isaiah chapter 52. 
And then the last way in which this connects us with our Old Testament portions is the idea of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Because our Torah portion concludes with a situation where uh, there's still a matter of justice that has not been completed. And Jesus, as the final sacrifice, brings final justice. And when he returns, he's going to bring ultimate final justice uh, when the books are opened and people are going to be uh, judged according to what is found in the books. But we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. So when we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 16... It opens up with the commandment to appoint judges in the towns. And there's very specific rules about these judges. It says they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. And we have to understand that righteous judgment begins with understanding the source of all righteousness is God himself. And the law that he has given is a reflection of his righteous standard. And so the ethical requirement of the people is to follow the law, and in doing so, they will be mimicking God's righteousness in their activity. And when the law is broken, they come before the judges, and they shall judge with righteous judgment. The standard is the law that's been given. They shall not pervert justice, bend the law, right? That is out of bounds. You shall not show partiality. Oh, you're my brother, you're my cousin, so of course I'm going to rule in your favor. No, you can't do that. <laughs> you shall not accept a bribe. And we know uh, even in our world today, bribes are required in so many places. I was just reading about Chicago and uh, how bribery is still a very big issue uh, if you want to get stuff done. It was, it was with regard to uh, restaurants, small businesses, how, how you have to bribe people to do their jobs, whether they're inspectors, uh, contractors, uh, zoning officials. The bribe is the way you get stuff done. And you go, oh, even here in America, we know that that happens in all these corrupt countries around the world. Well, no, Chicago, <laughs> Illinois, too. I can say that because I'm from Chicago. <laughs> Lee, go ahead. So um, justice is uh, in, in, in Deuteronomy 16, it, uh, 20, it says, Justice, justice shalt thou follow, that thou may live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God gives thee and th this repeating of a word is very important we've seen that earlier mm -hmm. in the Torah and and I just wanted to uh, read a little bit from the comments of of rabbi of the rabbis about why justice is so important to Jews okay it says first of all justice is based on the fact that we are all created in the image of God. And therefore, a human being cannot be treated as chattel or a thing, but must be treated as a personality. Every human being is the possessor of the right to life, honor, and the fruits of his labor. And justice is the awe-inspired respect for the personality of others and their inalienable rights. As injustices it, the most flagrant manifestation of disrespect for the personality of others. And so it goes on to say that in Hebrew, so in, in Greek, the idea of justice was akin to harmony, but in Hebrew, it is akin to holiness. Isaiah 5.16 has for all time declared the holy God is sanctified by justice and brief where there is no justice, no proper and practical appreciation of the human rights of every human being as sons of the one and only God of righteousness, there we have a negation of religion. 
the oppressor, the man who tramples on others, and especially on those like the orphan and the stranger who are too weak to defend themselves, is throughout Scripture held forth as the enemy of God and man. The final disappearance of injustice and oppression is represented in the New Year Amidah, that's a prayer, a Jewish prayer, as the goal of human history and as synonymous with the realization of God's kingdom on earth. So justice is, you know, a big theme here. And, and, and I think we see in, in like you say, the herald of, of Yeshua, the ultimate application of what God, both God's justice and his mercy. And we'll, and you know, I just think that it's so important that it, that justice starts out as the big theme in this chapter mm-hmm. when all the rest heralds our perfect king mm-hmm. who is just to the orphan, the widow, the weak, who shows no partiality as you said right and the idea of no partiality is bedrock to one new man right there's no preference for jew or gentile paul will expand that a bit in galatians he says there's no preference for male or female bond or slave all are one in messiah and uh the 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 question of justice is behind it all um the connection for us then is to see that uh, we we touched on the idea of Jesus being the prophet that was to come he is also the judge who is still to come Uh, when we read about him returning in Revelation he comes with judgment we are saying that Jesus is the judge as well Uh, When Abraham said, uh, shall not the judge of the earth do right, uh, he's talking to God in that uh, dialogue about Sodom and Gomorrah. But the New Testament revelation of that judgment is that it will come through the Son of God, the incarnate one, the Lamb of God, who is also portrayed as the Lion of Judah, right? And so there is this two-sided nature that's a bad way to really talk about it but this 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 reality that jesus comes to offer salvation but when he returns he's going to return in judgment well on on, he's going to complete the salvation of those who've put their faith in him we will be fully saved when we see him and we'll be like him it says in in first john but on the other side of that there's the people who rejected him in life and who are going to receive the judgment for having rejected him. So Jesus is not only the prophet that the scriptures ultimately point to, but he is also the judge that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures are ultimately pointing to as well. And he's presented that way to us in in Revelation. Do you have something you wanted to throw in there? Um, And what's great about this Torah portion is it starts out with judges and it mentions then uh, what happens in cases that are too hard for the local judges then you bring that case to the priests in Jerusalem and they will sort it all out for you and so what that points to for us as followers of Yeshua is how he is presented to us in the book of Hebrews throughout as the culmination, the goal, the telos, the end point of the whole priestly system and the sacrificial system all point to Yeshua, to his high priestly character in the order of Melchizedek, to his once and for all offering that he brought his own blood seemingly into the heavenly sanctuary to, to, to present and to make total atonement for for the sins of the world, as John pointed out in, in John chapter 1. So, so Jesus is the, is the judge that the scriptures have been pointing to. Jesus is the priest that the scriptures have been pointing to. We already talked about that he's the prophet 
that the scriptures have been pointing to. And right here, also in this passage, are the rules regarding kings. And it talks about the king, and he'll be one who you, uh, well, it's just so interesting, isn't it? We talked about this uh, the other day. When you open up to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and you begin the portion at verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So it sounds like that's kind of off the rails that they want to imitate the nations around them in the first place. Right. Right? But God says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So, okay, I'll make a concession. You want a king, I'll give you a king, but it's got to be my king. Exactly. Right? So he says, this one will be one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You can't put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And I'm just reminded of that passage in Hebrews where it talks about Yeshua not being ashamed to call us brothers, right? And friends. Well, friends in, in John, but specifically tying to this idea right. here that he will be one from among the brothers. Right. Yeah? So that he's not ashamed to call us brothers. We're brothers. He's the king, our brother. Uh, it's just really a, a beautiful picture. So the earthly king is not allowed to um, acquire many horses for himself. He's not allowed to cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And the idea there, I think, is to send them back into some kind of servitude. He wants to build up his army, his uh, charioteers, whatever the case may be. He's not supposed to buy them, and he can't trade people for horses either. You can't go back to Egypt. That is the bondage. That's the land of slavery. Kings have nothing to do with Egypt, which is one of the uh, condemnations that we find in, I, I think it's Isaiah, uh, where he says uh, you, you want to lean on that broken reed, uh, Egypt. And what a great uh, word picture that is. Uh, you, you, you have a walking stick, uh, only it's got a huge crack in the middle. And you go to lean on it, and it's going to break under your weight. Well, he says that's what it is like to go back to Egypt. To depend on Egypt is like depending on a broken walking stick. But, Jerry, when they, when they left Egypt in, in the Exodus uh, event, God told them, you, you, you shall never come this way again. He gave them explicit instructions not to. Mm -hmm. So I think, and th then when you read you know, Deuteronomy and the prophets, they always want to go back to Egypt for help. And he, said, he was real adamant about it, about not going back. Right. Although, isn't it interesting, one of the other ways that uh, Yeshua is, is a bit like Moses, is that uh, both of them had to come out of Egypt to go back and save the people. Yes. Moses uh, ran away when he murdered that guy and then was called out about it. Uh, but God called him back to Egypt to deliver the people. And the Son of God uh, had to flee to Egypt to get away from Herod, and then God called him out of Egypt. So there's always this come out of Egypt idea for sure. And for us as New Testament followers of Yeshua, we understand Egypt to represent slavery, bondage to sin. And it's used by Paul in that regard in a couple different places for sure. Uh, we don't want to be in the place of depending on Egypt is representative not only of sin but of the world's ways the world's ideas the world's uh, thoughts about how to get things done we don't want to go back to Egypt we have got to rely on the scripture we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit we've got to rely I would also say on uh, wise counselors sometimes that's a mistake that we make uh, going it alone uh, when when the scriptures give us uh, a lot of encouragement to seek godly wisdom, godly counsel from others who've already walked this way. Uh, I'm not sure how we got way over there, but anyway, the king in chapter 17, uh, he's not allowed to get horses. You'll never go back that way. Uh, he says, uh, don't, the king shall not acquire many wives. 
And he gives the reason for that. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And I think uh, the other day, didn't you make the comment, if you got a lot of wives, you're going to need a lot of silver and gold. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you think about Solomon in this, in this passage here. Mm-hmm. And this is clear. But, you know, God tries to instruct and warn his children of these pitfalls. And, and even in our own lives, we've got to always be on guard and, you know, walk by faith mm-hmm. and not by sight. Yes. There's, there's this um, divided loyalty that is representative in having many wives. And ultimately, at the bottom, when we look at Solomon as the example, they, they, they turn our hearts away from the living God. And it may not be to idols and other gods in the same way as Solomon, uh, but the idols of the world, the necessity of having enough money to pay for a lot of wives, that's not usually a problem in our culture, but it is something I suppose to think about in other cultures where people can have more than one husband or wife. Um, But anyway, this is for the king. Don't acquire a lot of wives. And then this is the interesting part. Uh, How is the king to rule? And it says that when he sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. And his copy will be approved by the priests. So it's the priest's job to teach and to train and to instruct. And so uh, the king writes out the law for himself, but he can't write his own law. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to write God's law. And that will be approved by the Levitical priests. And once it's written, it shall stay with him. He shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. So again, what is the purpose of this this, uh, commandment for the king? It is to learn to fear the Lord, to respect, have reverence, to be in awe of the king, to... Uh, live obediently out of a reverence. And he will fear the Lord in this way by keeping the words of the law and these statutes and doing them. So obedience is the proper response to fearing the Lord, to having what we say Sure, I love God. Sure, I respect God. Sure, I care about God. Sure, I have reverence for him. All those words that are wrapped up in this idea, how do we show it? By taking him seriously when he speaks, doing what he says. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And that is Old Testament. That's New Testament. It hasn't changed, right? Right. So, uh, verse 20, it continues about this, this idea of the word that uh, he's supposed to read it also so that his heart not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, and that he may continue long in his kingdom. I just like this idea that for the, this earthly king that he not see himself as greater than his brothers. And it ties back to what we read about judges not showing any partiality. So while the king may stand higher than the people in regards to the social order, in regards to God, everybody's at the same level. And, and it ties back to justice and injustice. Mm-hmm, what you said about yeah. the, the creation and how how much in our culture today people who are not Bible people take for granted things that really come from the Bible. Yeah, in, in, in Western culture, we take for granted the dignity of human beings, uh, the, the, the rule of law. We take for granted that this is the way everybody thinks. But no, it is really a product of the Scripture and God's teaching beginning here in the Old Covenant and carrying over into the New that the worth of every single human being is a biblical idea. And what is happening, uh, as, as someone said, in, in Western culture, what people are trying to do is they're trying to keep the fruit of biblical civilization while chopping away the roots. 
And we can see as things devolve around us, as lawlessness seems to be increasing, that you cannot maintain the fruit without the roots. And so that's why we're hopeful here for a revival. That's why we're hopeful here for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you were part of that Jesus revolution generation back in the late 60s and early 70s, you know what I'm talking about when, when a disaffected bunch of people, uh, sick of the Vietnam War, sick of the government, sick of so many things, discovered Yeshua, that God poured out meaning and purpose and life onto people in this remarkable, remarkable way. And we're kind of in that same mindset in a way right now, that, that uh, the sense of meaning and purpose, uh, what is life all about, is just so difficult for people to answer anymore. There's this huge level of dissatisfaction. And people have grown weary of secular answers and I think in some way are being primed for the spirit to really move. I just am so hopeful of that. How about you guys? Well, when, and you know, we're seeing here, you, so you've described uh, Yeshua as the perfect judge, mm -hmm. right? An impartial judge, a judge who whose only criteria is truth and righteousness. And now you've described him as a perfect representation of a king whose heart is not turned away and uh, he doesn't turn aside from the commandments. His heart's not lifted up above his brethren. And, and then next is... Yeshua as a perfect priest, as our perfect high priest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, God has given us in the incarnation of the exact imprint of his nature, right? Ye Yeshua is the exact imprint of the nature of God, has given us the perfect example of a judge, a king, a prophet, and a priest. As you were talking, what God has given us is himself. He has given us himself in coming and taking on our flesh and our humanity to live among us as one of us. And as you were talking about the king not lifting himself up higher, I just thought of Yeshua consistently presenting himself as the servant. Even though he is king, he lived his life out as a servant. And ideally, isn't that what we talk about in, in our leadership? We want I mean, servant leadership, right? And Jesus is the perfect exemplar of that for us. Yeah, just so, so wonderful. Um, so so this, this portion then, it, it, it lays out the, the necessity and the importance in societal functioning of the judge, of the priest, of the king. We made the connection, as Moses said a little bit later on, between the prophet and, uh, that will rise and Jesus the prophet. And, you know, the prophet is important in society because he's the one who spells out what God is thinking. He's, you know, and, and we want to be, be very clear in the Old Covenant when the prophets spoke, there is a measure of them telling the future, but that is not their primary role. Their primary role is to call the people back to God. They, you, have, you have left off from following God. You're going through empty rituals. You're mouthing the words. You're, but at the same time, you're, you're crushing the orphans and the widows, and you're not doing justice. You need to come back to God. That's the primary role of the prophet. And so much of their foretelling then is of judgment that's coming if they don't mend their ways. Piggybacked onto that, then, is all of their forth-telling, predicting the future, about how God is still going to redeem his people. And much of their prophetic word centers around the coming of the Messiah. They tell us that he'll be born in Bethlehem. They tell us he'll be born of a virgin. They tell us that he'll be born at this particular time when you sort through Daniel chapter 9 and the, and the, and the, and the 70 weeks. Uh, you know, there's... 
There's all kinds of uh, various timelines that people have tried to sort that out specifically. But the one thing they all agree on is that the Messiah had to appear, at, in order for Daniel 9 to be true, had to appear at the time that Jesus walked the earth. So we have uh, Psalm 22, not a bone will be broken. We have, uh, you know, they, they gave me vinegar for, for, my, for my thirst. So many different ways that the prophets of the Old Covenant pointed then to Messiah. So that is really their role. So, so the point I was making then is, is the role of the prophet in society in their society and in our society too is primarily not to tell us the future but to speak God's word uh, of encouragement of uh, rebuke when necessary and to bring us back to God and Jesus of course is he didn't have to write the law down for himself he was (laughs) the embodiment of the law he is the living word and he is the perfect prophet because whenever he speaks it is absolutely going to be the truth, and we don't have to go and wait and see if what he said will come true, like uh, the, the instructions about prophets who come and tell you this. And we know that uh, when he does a sign or wonder, he's never going to say to us, as we read a little bit earlier, that uh, now I want you to follow another God. He's not going to do that. He is the perfect prophet for us. So and we, and, and you ahead. know as you were talking about the role of the prophet the prophet is really the conscience of the culture and you know according to the will of God and the word of God mm-hmm. so he he he's the one like crying out and <laughs> you know in the darkness for the light and yeah Jesus is the perfect prophet, but he's also the perfect priest because let's see what they say about the priests here. They say the priests, that's the Levites, have shall have no portion nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance, and they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance as he has spoken unto them. So, for the Lord, this is chapter 18, I'm reading from Deuteronomy 5. For the Lord thy God has chosen him out of all thy tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord for him and his sons forever. So, he is our perfect high priest, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I guess we should mention that when, when uh, the scripture talks about the prophet like Moses in uh, chapter 18, verse 15, it follows a whole description of uh, occultic practices uh, which were used in ancient times as a means to understand the future. Right. Uh, whether it's uh, necromancy, sorcerer, charmers, mediums, uh, this whole long list of diviners, and uh, he says all these things are abomination to the Lord. These were, these were practices of the ancient people, uh, and I suppose to some degree they, those practices carry on today in some form or another. I, I, I know they do. You can see palm readers and other sorts of folks, uh, astrology people, everybody trying to tell us uh, what we should expect in the future. Uh, God says, that's not for you. That's abominable. That's hateful. That's 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 the, the the way of the world, and you know we're not going to go that way. And then that's after condemning all of that. That's when he brings out the teaching about the prophet. And so again, uh, God's telling us, you need to come to me for information. <laughs> You need to come to me for guidance and direction. My prophet will speak my word. I've given you uh, instructions about how to tell who's a true and a false prophet. And, you know, that same idea carries through to the new covenant. When you look at the letters of uh, Paul and Peter, and I can't remember if false prophets come up in James, but Jude, they all have strong warnings about false prophets. John says, test the spirits, right? So this is, this is 
uh, all of, a, of, of the same piece, if you will, the idea that there is truth, God's word revealed, and there is a false way to go. And uh, we need to be wise to what the truth is, hence the need to have it by our side and read it every day so that we will learn to fear the Lord, right? You know, what gets me, Jerry, this was written about, what, about 3,500 years ago, something like this, and it still stands true. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it transcends time, generations, and look at today. I mean, look at many people that follow the horoscopes today and a, and a multitude of other what things, and God is often the last one they turn to mm -hmm. for help. I would say uh, we're in a, a time where some of the falsest of prophets, or the most common false prophets, maybe I put it that way, are what I would call self-help gurus. Right. Right? Uh, all you have to do is work on yourself, define yourself, identify yourself, be true to yourself, authentic to yourself, follow your heart. Uh, all of those teachings really are antithetical to what we find in the scripture. Uh, to find yourself, Jesus says, you must lose yourself. Whoa, that really goes against most of what I'm hearing in, in the world around me today, right? Follow your heart, the world says. Hmm. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful and incredibly wicked. And, and, and Deuteronomy 18.13 says, thou shalt be wholehearted with the Lord thy God. Mm -hmm. That's where our heart should be. Right. Not follow my heart, whatever I want, my pleasure, da, 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 you know, what I think is right, what I think will bring me. No, thou shalt be wholehearted with the Lord thy God. And then in 18, he says, I will raise up a prophet from among their brethren, brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So, you know, this is God's justice. Mm -hmm. This is this is God's commandment. And, you know, it it is we 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 reap what we sow. That is that is the law. The and you know, if if we reap sow seeds of with sorcerers and all that stuff we're gonna reap some bad stuff right and and god is telling us it's a narrow gate wholehearted with the lord thy god follow the words that he commands us so i feel like this may come out harshly and i don't mean it to be but as followers of yeshua when we look at the scope of the prophetic ministry and how, in spite of all of their warnings, they were taken into exile. But the justice of God was executed, but the mercy of God brought them back. When Yeshua appears on the scene, and in Luke he says, I, I, I'm here to announce the, the appointed time, right? and he is rejected by the Jewish people. If indeed we're saying that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, capital P, and the scripture here in chapter 18 says, uh, verse 19, uh, if they will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Is it legitimate to ask what happened in Jewish society and Jewish life that would have led to a second exile? And it's, I think, unavoidable to say that having rejected the Messiah, God brought judgment on the people. They did not listen, and he required it of them. Now, we are living in the day of God's grace and mercy, not only to the nations in the preaching of Yeshua to all people, but in the return of the Jewish people to Israel, to the 
vision of dry bones starting to come true in our lifetimes, that God is gathering the dry bones, that God is putting muscles, and that God has always had a remnant of Jewish believers, but that he is doing a mighty, mighty work in our day of that cycle that we see throughout Scripture. You know, you look at Judges. What, what is Judges all about? We're following God. We're going after other gods. We get in trouble. We call out to God. He saves us. And that is a, a recurrent pattern. And I think that what we're seeing in our time then is, is that pattern of more and more Jewish people calling out to God. You look at so many ministries to Jewish people that are, that are growing and thriving. You look at what's happening in the land itself with so many Jewish people coming to faith in Yeshua that the time is at hand. That's why I, I'm really hopeful for, for a, a latter days, end time outpouring of the Spirit too. Now, this is coming. This, this is really coming. And, you know, um, we want to make sure that we get to uh, our Isaiah portion. So let me just make that, that bridge, okay? So the Parsha opens with appointing judges throughout the land. And the Parsha closes with this uh, direction about what to do if you find a murdered person out on the road. And nobody knows who the murderer is. But we cannot have the blood guilt on the land, right? right? And so the instructions are figure out who's the nearest town, go get the elders from that town, then take a heifer that has uh, never been yoked and go find a barren valley with running water. There's a lot of, a lot of to-dos here. And when you get there with that heifer, break its neck. And what does it say? Uh, you'll pronounce uh, these words over it. Uh, we're in chapter 21. Uh, this is the priests and the Levites. I'm sorry, we didn't make that clear, but the priests and the Levites uh, are, are, are overseeing this ritual so that it's all done uh, according to God's laws and with the eye to making some kind of just decision, some kind of atonement, uh, although the word atonement isn't used here, uh, but in verse 6 of 21, all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken. Did I say that already? you mm -hmm. got to break the heifer's neck. They'll wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken. So if you, in our minds, if we picture, so here's the dead heifer lying on the ground. And so you take water and you're washing your hands over the heifer. So we're all standing over the heifer washing our hands. And you shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. the importance of, of uh, atoning for the blood guilt. But there's still the question that this heifer has stood in and gotten killed for the one who committed the murder, that there's this vicarious substitutionary quality to what's going on. And we began with setting up judges to do justice. And in the end of this Parsha, while we have settled the problem, I would say, temporarily, the, the question of ultimate justice has not been settled because the murderer is out there roaming around, right? And I think this is the connection to Yeshua because he is the ultimate justice. He is the one who's going to set all things right. And that's what really connects us then to our Isaiah portion. If you flip over to Isaiah chapter 51, um, well, I'm, I'm going to give a quick synopsis on the whole Isaiah 51, 12 to 52, 12. If you look at it, it goes back and forth between God's judgment, God's favor, God's judgment, God's redemption. And then uh, we want to focus our last few minutes on chapter 52, where God is back to uh, the, the announcement of good news. Uh, chapter 52, verse 7. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And that's that word in Hebrew uh, that is simply a herald. One, the one who brings good news is the herald. And we talked about that word already with John. So John has beautiful feet <laughs> out there in the Jordan uh, announcing good news. Who publishes peace. Uh, that's that word shalom, uh, oneness, unity, rest. Who brings good news of happiness, uh, tov, goodness. So this herald of uh, good news, of, of peace, of uh, tov, of goodness. How beautiful is the person who brings that kind of a witness, that kind of a testimony. Who publishes salvation is what it says in the ESV. And we want to make clear that that word salvation in English is our name of Yeshua. How lovely are the feet of those who go out talking about peace and justice and goodness who are out there talking about Yeshua, who publishes Amen. salvation, Yeshua. So, so my translation says, who announces Yeshua, mm -hmm. who announces salvation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. That so, says unto Zion, thy God reigns. Yes, 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 yes. And yes. Isn't that what John did? We just re uh, read that he announced the uh, Yeshua, the and, salvation. And that's what we're trying to pull Great. together Great. here for ourselves and for everybody listening is that God has a story and it hasn't changed. It's been the same story in the Old Covenant, wherever you look, and it's the same story through Yeshua and the Gospels, through Paul and the epistles, and all the way through to Revelation. It's the same story. God is announcing Yeshua, 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 salvation, salvation, salvation. And then, of course, this, this strong connection, I've announced Yeshua, your God reigns, right? Your God reigns. In a way, just now, it, it ties in for us as we, we look around the world and we see so many places we think God's not reigning. But in fact, when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's an expression of our belief that God is reigning even now. When things may look chaotic and out of control, God is reigning. How many times in our lives have we felt out of control? What in the world is going on? And we have to back up and say, God is sovereign. He sees me. He hears me. He's delivering me. He reigns. Our hope is, is, and our faith is in God keeps his promises, and he keeps his promises for our salvation, mm -hmm. for salvation is Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation because it, then 9 and 10, Isaiah 52, 9 10 says, Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem. We talked last week about rejoicing in the Lord. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nation and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That is Yeshua Eloheinu. The Yeshua of our the, God. This is, and you know... It's translated in English when, when our listeners pick it up and read it. They're going to see salvation with a small s. I just ask you to read it with how it is in Hebrew with Yeshua Eloheinu. That is, and think of it as a proper name. It is his name. This is not a small s. This is the big s, Yeshua. Yes. And I like how you uh, brought up the idea of joy. Uh, you skipped over uh, verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord of Hashem, Adonai, the, the, the matchless name uh, revealed on, on the mountain to Moses. They see the return of Hashem, Yahweh, to Zion break forth together into singing yes the joy of the lord is our strength and we want to proclaim that the joy of the lord is ultimately 
and finally found in faith in Yeshua. Well, Jerry, you, I, one, one thing I'd like to bring up on, um, and when John was announcing G Yeshua, Jesus coming, that was the beginning of his ministry. You know, that was the start of, of a three, three and a half year mm -hmm. ministry that Jesus was going to bring. But everybody in, in that time, you know, John's Jewish, Jesus is Jewish, the Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees, and they're all just, he came to the Jews first, mm -hmm. just, just to proclaim this good news. Yes. And that's what uh, I think then, and, and everything that we see is, is coming out, out from Jesus is also in the Deuteronomy sections. But think about this. Uh, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see Yeshua of our God even in his ministry he went to Samaria to the woman at the well That's right. he went to Syrophoenicia and the lady who, who begged for her children he, he went to he didn't wind up all the way to the centurion's house, right? But he was on his way to help this Gentile. That's right. All the nations. All the nations. All the nations. And that's what's going to be glorious. But see, that's, that's how God was from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. There's no walls. There never has been. And, you know, a lot of times we, when we read, we think it's, you know, the Old Testament exclusively Jewish. It's not. You and know, God's always had his, has hands open to, to all. And, you know, just trying to sort of tie up the theme we were starting with in Deuteronomy of how Yeshua is the perfect judge, the perfect king, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, our high priest. And at the end, you brought up this unsolved murder mystery that requires a price to be paid for the expiation of sin, right? Mm -hmm. For the absolutely for the atonement of even sin that it's not exactly sure who caused it, and and John, First John, well, John the Baptist says in in First John, he says, <clears throat> "Look, here is the Lamb of God," and so. Yeshua is the Lamb of God who not only is the judge, the king, the prophet, and the high priest, he is the expiation of our sin. The perfect sacrifice. Propitiation, uh, satisfying the wrath of God. Expiation, satisfying our uh, guilt. He's both. Yeah. And that's where we want to end is John's proclamation. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you understand Yeshua in that way for yourselves, our radio audience? Have you come to the point of understanding that you are a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and that Yeshua has paid the price that you ought to pay? Just like that heifer died in the place of the actual murder in, murderer in order to uh, rid the land of its guilt. So Yeshua died in order to take your place for the guilt that you have before a holy God. We want to say that God's announced good news, God's announced peace, God has announced goodness, and salvation, Yeshua, for all who put their faith in him. If you're ready to put your faith in Yeshua, I'm going to ask you to pray along with me. Father, thank you for providing Yeshua, salvation, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I recognize that I am a sinner, and I ask you now to cleanse me, for I have put my faith in what Jesus did on the cross, what Yeshua did when he died for me. And I believe with all my heart that you didn't leave him in the grave, but that you raised him up to eternal life and that in him I have eternal life as well. I ask you to give your spirit to me that I might know you and follow you all the days of my life and give you glory 
and I ask it in Yeshua's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that, would you reach out to us at One New Man Ministries International on Facebook and share this broadcast with your friends, One New Man Ministries, on all of your favorite uh, podcast platforms. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be with you again next week. God bless you all.